What's up, everybody? This is Laura Allen from Womongols. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Alan Wares. Alan is the co-host of a radio show and podcast called The Albion Roar. The Albion Roar covers Brighton and Hove Albion of the English Premier League. If you haven't heard, that's my team. As I am very new to English football, I thought I would sit down with Alan and ask him my laundry list of questions. Our conversation is coming to you in two parts. Enjoy the first episode and keep your eye out for part two. Let us know what you think at Womongols on Twitter. Alrighty, everybody. Enjoy my conversation with Alan. Alan, welcome to Womongols. Hello, Laura Ellen. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me on. I, I feel honored. Well, this should, I mean... To be fair, we should give everyone some background. So I was on the Albion Roar as a new uh, Brighton fan. And so uh, you said that you would also be willing to come on our show. Uh, and I thought it was a perfect opportunity to really learn and dig into English football. And so I'm, I'm glad that you're uh, going to sit down with me and uh, talk for a very long time. <laughs> well, in 10 years of doing the Albion Roar, um, you've probably, you're probably our... 17th best get no you were you were fabulous <laughs> when you came on no it was, it was great so it's, the thing is it's an interesting thing that brighton being in the premier league it and for us fans as well we as broadcasters albeit on a, a sort of very local parochial level uh, have found that you know we've got international broadcasters and publishers and what have you asking for kind of that fans point of view um, and also it means that there are, because you guys are plugged into the Premier League a little bit, you know, but you're seeing Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got Brighton, which are the new boys. There's a kind of a curiosity factor. And that's where we've, we're finding the likes of yourself and, and face it, thousands of others who are uh, taking an interest in, in Brighton and Hove Albion. Well, <coughs> yes, absolutely. And, and we don't need to get into my my full interest here. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a really, uh, a pleasure and a joy. Um, so I've enjoyed uh, having someone to ask all my, my Brighton questions to instead <laughs> of just, you know, aimlessly Googling things. Um, so, Oh, so I'm Alan Google now. That, that's right. Alan Google is who we okay. have here today. Um, you should trademark that. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, so I wanted to start like kind of right at the beginning. Um, we have a bunch of questions to get through, but, but, just kind of to start off, can you give us a brief history of uh, football in England? And, and I do want to give the caveat for our listeners here in the States, uh, football is soccer. They're the same thing. Um, so, Alan, could you give me just a brief um, history of football in England? No, because there is no brief history. I mean, we're talking about something that goes back several hundred years. Um, football of varying kinds has been played in, in, in different forms. Well, across across Europe, um, you know, the, even I think back in the 14th century, um, one of the kings, I can't remember which, banned it, um, a form of it, because it was actually interfering with the, the, the archers' practice um, when they were fighting against the French. So... Um, this thing goes back a long way. If we're talking about the, the game as a modern thing, then we, we have to go back to the 1848 Cambridge Rules. It was drawn the the rules of what they ended up calling association football were drawn up in Cambridge University, and it forms the basis of largely the game we know today. Where it uh, they, they, they needed to have. Um, a new form of uh, rules, a new set of rules, because there was a, a big argument across those who played this kind of hybrid game of, of those who believed that you should be able to pick up the ball or handle the ball and those who didn't. And those who 
didn't believe that you should be able to hand the ball formed the association football committee those who believed you did went off and formed the rugby football association so anyway let's let's stick on this this particular path um the football association itself was formed in 1863 in london um, and which picked up the cambridge rules it tweaked the rules here and there um and in 1871 formed the first football ongoing competition the fa cup now it's called the fa cup rather than the english fa cup because it is basically it's the first tournament of its kind there was 11 teams that entered mostly from the south of england and mostly from public schools when i say public schools i mean fee-paying schools elite schools in the same year we had uh, sorry in 1872 the uh, same season we had the first ever uh, international match between england and scotland played in uh, queen's park area of glasgow and the following year the first ever international in england played at uh, kennington oval in south london which is now a famous cricket ground uh, between england and scotland something that i haven't thought about actually until you mentioned the international component so um, I don't know much about the history of sports, but I know, like, was anything like football, you know, did it exist in any other forms? You know, because, right, was cricket started, because when you mentioned cricket, that's what made me think about it. So was cricket formed in India? Or no, cricket was, cricket is very much an English game. Okay. Um, formed um, in this neck of the woods where I'm speaking to you from. I'm I'm in a, a a small town called Lansing, which is about nine miles west of Brighton on the south coast of England. Uh, itself fifty miles south of London, and in this particular area, which has got very much sort of um, it's it's a f along the coast is all built up towns, but go back inland, you're into farming communities and and rural areas, uh, and you still are largely, albeit the the motorway going thundering through it these days, and a bat and ball game of various um uh connotations various styles were played there's one played around here called stall ball which was actually played by um milkmaids but cricket itself and the form that we know it i arguably uh, was formed in the sussex downs and hampshire so this kind of area um i guess probably about 230 years ago so it certainly precedes football as we know it um the reason it's played in India and Pakistan and Australia and New Zealand and, and to a certain point Canada, I think, is more to do with uh, Britain's behaviour with the um, empire and, and, and invading various indigenous lands, taking over over and and having the game played in there. And, and the Indians, the locals, took to it massively and still have. So if you pick places in the empire, the old empire, the Commonwealth, that's where you'll find the biggest cricket uh, support, uh, supporting nations. We're talking, I say, Australia, New Zealand, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Bangladesh, South Africa, Canada, they play it, parts of Africa, other parts of Africa, Zimbabwe is played. Um, so you'll get a real, and it's, it's actually not dissimilar, although it's spread a bit further with rugby. Again, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, not so much India, um, but it's also then played across Europe. And you also find it's played in South America. And the, <clears throat> this is where the parallels, the international parallels um, really sort of bring out because football itself grew across, for instance, Europe, and then later South America with the trade ties that um, the British um, consulates had in various cities and states across Europe and across South America. So, for instance, in Argentina, uh, a lot of their top division football clubs were named after English clubs or English places. The top one of the top clubs in Argentina is called River Plate. The local name is Rio Plata, but they call themselves River Plate after the English name. There's um, Boca Juniors. That no, River is my team in Argentina. Okay, 
So it's it's formed from English people. You've got Newell Old Boys, Newell's Old Boys. You've got um, Arsenal Argentina over there. You've got a whole host of names of English clubs because they were formed by English um, either settlers or tradespeople. AC Milan, one of the biggest clubs in, in Europe, was formed by four Englishmen as a football and cricket club. Athletic Bilbao in Spain was formed by um, English students in Bilbao and so on and so forth. Anywhere Juventus wear black and white stripes in homage to Notts County in England because they used to play in pink and they found that their shirts were just not of um, durable enough material. So a visiting... Uh, tradesman um, who knew a friend backing Nottingham said, I've, I know someone who can make some, some shirts for you, lent them Notts County's kit. And since then, Juventus have been playing in black and white stripes as a homage to Notts County, a team who have largely spent, although the, the oldest uh, football league club in existence, formed in 1857, I believe it is, um, they uh, play homage to them. So when Juventus moved to their new ground, the first team they played as a uh, an opening match was Notts County, and so on and so forth. These stories are dotted across Europe as to the English influence of football and its history. The fact that they've since overtaken us and left us for dead is another matter entirely. Yeah, no, and I, and I thank you for kind of taking that um, <laughs> detour because I, I mean I think it is you know such an important you know perspective. Not only you know thinking about what. Uh, you know, soccer looks like here in the States, but then also thinking about, you know, what it looks like globally. And, and not only do people follow um, English football here in the U.S., but, you know, because of, of technology and, and television rights and everything, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we're able to watch, you know, La Liga or, or the Italian leagues or, um, you mm-hmm. know, the German leagues and everything. Um, so I think that's important. So before I soberly interrupted you, uh, <laughs> you right. were talking about the FA Cup and, you know, that so domestically, was- domestic, we're talking about the fact that yes, the FA Cup started in 1872, but then you realize, and it's actually a similar, there's parallels, there's a similar split to the way that rugby went in the South of England, where it was played by the elite schools and played by, um, members of the armed forces, the you know the, the the air force had a well not the air force back then because they it hadn't hadn't been formed. No one was flying in those days, but you had um, the 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 navy and the army had their own uh, and and the various aspects within the army had their own football teams. But in the north of England, where they also wanted to play football, they couldn't find they could take the time off work in order to play football we're talking about people who used to work in the mills who used to work in the factories so we've got this very much class split so what had happened was was that football clubs were formed and they became professional football clubs so those who are the best players they came out of the factories they came out of the mills they came out of the the offices and became newly formed professional footballers and so in the north of england and in the midlands you had professional football clubs. And when that, when the Football League broke away, or this, this new thing, the Football League, where the FA didn't want a league and these professional football clubs did, they formed their own uh, competition, the Football League. They based themselves in the north of England. And in 1887, the first season, 87-88, um, we had uh, a 12-team um, first division. Preston North End were the first winners of it. They went the entire season unbeaten. <clears throat> in 1892, a second division was formed, again, exclusively of teams from the North and from the Midlands. 
Um, and it wasn't until the early 1910s that teams from the South started playing. I think Bristol City were the first team in the, the southern half of the country to start playing. Um, and in 1920, a third tier was formed. And in 1921, the following year, they had the third tier, which was actually split regionally. Um, so you had now four divisions of which you had three tiers, which carried on until 1958. And then we had a more linear structure of um, football in England with promotion and relegation. Yeah. So was that the be? So that was the beginning of promotion relegation or kind of the the league structure as we know it now. Um, we we had promotion. You had promotion and relegation between the first two divisions, pretty much from the off. Um, and a team from the south and a team from the north would be promoted into the second division after those divisions were formed. And the teams coming down depends on where they were geographically. Would then either go into the south or the north. So it sounds like kind of like at the very beginning, it was more of an upper class. Like you said, it was um, at is existing at universities and, and schools that you had to pay for. But then mm. like at what point did like at what point did it become feasible for kind of your working class um you know, players to come out of the, you know, you mentioned like coming out of the mines, coming out of the mills to be able to like at what point did that happen? Well, I'd say it's pretty much when the Football League itself formed. I mean, a lot of football clubs, you know, there were a fair few football clubs, a lot of which don't exist now, but they would have formed out of working men's clubs and they would have formed out of village or town committees or whatever it might have been. And that was, like I say, pretty much in the, the, the late 1880s to the point they actually did form their own Football League, the Football League as we know it now, pretty much. Um, and it's interesting that as, as soon as those clubs formed, the previous, so we had about 15, 16 years from the inauguration of the FA Cup to the inauguration of the, the Football League. And once the Football League was there and established, those football clubs like Oxford University, Royal Engineers, um, Wanderers, Blackburn Olympic, and, and, and clubs like that who hitherto had been um, dominating the FA Cup, after that, not one of them ever won it again. And, you know, that was basically amateur football as a force in football done away with and the professionals had effectively and let's use this phrase one gotcha yeah and so then um getting into kind of the evolution of the league structure so um you know you have the top division and then you mentioned that there were three divisions and then it became regional and then at some point it transitioned to more of this linear structure that you're talking about mm. um so so what is that linear structure Okay, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's more linear at the top end, but it's, it's what we call the pyramid. So at the very top, you have the Premier League, Tier 1. This is how you refer to it, because by the time you get down to the to the lower tiers, it is regional. And so there's sort of equivalent leagues, and it's done, and it's split geographically. So the top, you've got the Premier League. The second one is the Championship. Third one is League 1. Fourth one is League 2. Now, until 1992, it was just the first, second, third, and fourth divisions. Um, some marketing idiot decided that all oh, these are great things to change it and by the way we'll just throw all the money at the premier league and leave the, the football grassroots to fend for itself 
Um, and we have this ridiculous notion of separating between the notion of league and non-league, even though it's actually an automatic promotion and relegation to it. And this is administration nonsense. We have three bodies which run English football, the Premier League, the Football Association, the Football League. Most of, and most of the time they're at loggerheads, not being able to get anything done for the benefit of English football. So below League Two, the fourth tier, is something you have the National League. That's something that changes its name all the time. But again, that is also national. And then below that, Tier 6, we then split into regional divisions and that's what we call national league north national league south below that you then have you then start getting into uh more divisions but um more um more regional even sort of tied to regional you have to bear in mind laurel and that although this is a small country yes it's got 60 million people in this is a football crazy country and so we have clubs which might only attract three or four thousand people to a given match and, and as you obviously as you go down the divisions you get fewer and fewer, fewer people turn up and yet when we're talking about local regionalism we'll be we're talking about that, that football clubs can sustain themselves even when they've got another three or four within 10 15 miles of where they are so they can sustain that because the 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 parochialism and the and the the, the civic pride that you have for the town of the, the football club of the town that you support can actually run quite deep now the nearest one for me here is worthing they're in tier seven um in in a, a regional league and yet they can still get 900 people a thousand people 1500 on a good day to their game this is how far down support goes down the pyramids so even when you get down to tier 11 you'll still get a couple of hundred people um turning up to these and paying to to turn up and you know even you know paying a fiver to get in so you realize that the support through the divisions is always there yeah. Um, so yeah, and and as you go down the tiers, as as you go, and like I say I'm talking about tier six, which is two divisions, and then tier seven, which is three, then tier eight, which then goes into something like half this, and these all feed into, um, into the the, the pyramid above them. Um, so you know, it might only be the top one or two teams that go up, but it'll be the bottom four that come down because there's more divisions feeding into the the division above them. If that makes sense to you, I'll draw you a diagram and then you know, sort of send it across on a paper airplane to you. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Well, and I think um, you know, I think an important thing for our listeners here in the states is that the USL has just released a, a new marketing, um, you know, and, and very much rebranded. Um, and so, as we know here in the US, the MLS is our top division, um, and then um, starting you know, next year where we have this new branding. And so USL, which is division two is now um, USL championship, um, yeah. which, um, you know, sounds familiar. Um, yeah. And then um, USL division three, which is starting next year and has existed in other forms kind of throughout the history of, of lower division um, soccer in the US is going to be league one. And then the mm. PDL, so the professional development league, which uh, the big branding recently has been that I think like 70% uh, somewhere around there, 70, 75% of all MLS, so top division players have played in the PDL at some point. So the PDL no, I... is now part of the USL or, or has been part of the USL, but is now branded as league two. Um, and when they well, were for original thinking then. Yes. Yes. Very not original at all. Um, you yeah. know, and, and as they, you know, release this, one of the things that they did say is that 
they are looking to the future to do some sort of um, promotion relegation um, structure. Now there are a whole bunch of complications that come along with that. Um, and I don't think it's going to be happening anytime um, in the near future. I mean, I think this is like four or five years out. Um, but I do think it, um, it, it was an interesting announcement when they, when the USL, uh, you know, said that they had a big announcement. Um, mm -hmm. this is what most people thought it was going to be, um, or, you know, most people in the know, um, and, and here it is. So, um, I do think it's an interesting kind of, uh, compare and contrast that while, um, the MLS and the USL, um, do not have a, a, a legal kind of relationship with how they interact with each other um, mm. on a like game to game basis. Um, you know, the, the USL is, is now becoming um, and has now marketed itself as the lower division um, soccer of the United States with their with their three leagues. Well, I'm just wondering that the point about the MLS, which is obviously it's, it's the big razzmatazz thing across there, is is there the infrastructure within and, and the, the interest within uh, America for this kind of thing? Now, the reason I'm saying this is, and let's go back to the 70s when there was the, again, the razzmatazz of um, all the various clubs that are built up. And I'm thinking of the likes of Seattle Sounders and Tampa Bay Rowdies and uh, actually those are the only two that springs to mind. Oh, the New York Cosmos and, and, and things like that. And these were, these were teams where you had um, sort of big, rich businessmen through a, a big, you know, Pile of stuff, pile of money into the into the kitty, and managed to entice some of the world's biggest players. So George Best went over Pele, uh, Franz Beckenbauer. Um, I think Cruyff played over there. He played for the Washington Diplomats, and so on and so forth. Um, but then below, and but the thing is, it was all a little bit of a bubble, and and it burst far too easily. So where you've got the MLS now, and maybe you're getting twenty five thousand in in a country as vast as America, are you spreading your fan base too thin? Has it been built up enough? that you can actually sustain it and um, if you can believe you can do it for the mls is there the support and the fan base from the championship and the league one and league two or whatever you're going to call it now downwards to actually be able to sustain it now that is you know it's, it's not an i don't think it's necessarily an answer you can give right now but it's something that they must be able to answer because if the product and i do hate that phrase if the product isn't there it will burst far too easily if something has to be shifted culturally within the united states in order to that football it will never compete with baseball or american football and basketball of course not but enough that you can sustain it even on a local level you know that's that's a consideration the the, the point i'm making here is is that the parallels are here in 2018 these are the things that are happening from 1888 here the only difference is is that you now have a model to work to we were all fumbling in the dark and yet somehow just probably through the sustainability it has worked and, and thrived so it's, it's something that you guys are going to have to be so careful with just to make sure that, that the support is there yeah no and I, and I and i do agree with you and i think um and, and that's why i think the usl um as a league seems to be taking this very slowly um to really mm -hmm. ensure the financial stability of these teams to ensure the financial stability of the leagues um which, which i think is is a smart thing to do so mm -hmm. okay well you know we, we we watch with with great interest just to see how it all goes well, yes, we'll see. Isn't when I when I see when I see the you know the Riverhounds, 
when I see when I see your images of the river hounds uh, playing um, in a, Pits, a city the size of Pittsburgh, and I assume it's the it's the biggest team in Pittsburgh. I mean, I was obviously probably going to be lo- other local teams, and and the crowds you're getting, even for relative what we call local derbies. I mean, a local derby for you, I know, is two hundred miles away. A local derby for us is fifteen miles away. But my point would always be: is um, can the Riverhounds sustain themselves on the crowds that you're getting? It's not, again, not a question to, to be answered here and now. But, you know, um, if you're going to have the Riverhounds going to be a success, then I think you've got to entice a whole load, load more people from the Pittsburgh area into this. And it might not be the football itself which sells it. It might have to be, and there's aspects of it in Brighton and Hove Albion, of the whole community involving itself in projects which just do not actually uh, feature football. They have football as the core values you know, the whole notion of teamwork and support and celebration and joy and ups and downs and the, and how it mirrors life. But as a football team alone, if, it, if it's going to function as a football club alone, no one can actually, you know, carry on that way. You know, even Barcelona's thing across its seats, Mesquite and club, more than a club. Um you know, it's they they have to they have to reach out to so many people on so many levels, especially when you have um so many other distractions in life so it's it's a kind of an interesting thing with the pittsburgh riverhounds you know it'd be, it'd be interesting to see what happens with them well and i think i think you've touched on something really important which you know mike from from mongols has has talked about on on numerous occasions but it's supporting your local club and so you know what does it mean and what does it look like uh you know for people here in pittsburgh to recognize that the pittsburgh riverhounds that is our local club and so then we should be supporting our local club um and so i I think that's something that um at least you know from our perspective here at mongols and woe mongols um you know we've we hold very dear and and very important to us that um you know regardless how our team is doing um um that, that we should be supporting our local club um, and, and our local team. Um, and so, so I just real briefly. So I, again, I, I know that's a long story. You but... Briefly, I can't <laughs> do that. <laughs> um, so I know um, that Brighton, uh, you know, about 20 years ago was not doing so well. So, so can you kind of talk to us about um, where the, where the club was 20 years ago um, and then just kind of the slow progression um, that they've had to where they are now. Okay, I have to go back a bit further to give you a sense of context here. So the nature of the way that football clubs are run in this country previously, until probably about 20, 25 years ago, was usually some local businessman made good with a bit of an ego um, and uh, the hero of the, the community and run their football club as they see fit, even though they had no idea how to run a football club because running a football club is not like running an ordinary business. So back in 1983, Brighton got to the FA Cup final. It's the highest we've got on a national peak uh, until that point. As the years, as the 80s went through and and English football itself was in decline, we had hooligan issues. We had uh, increasing terrorist, uh, terrorist prices. We had uh, not just hooliganism, but we had the far right were infiltrating onto the terraces and so on and so forth. And, you know, where previously we were getting 20, 25,000 to watch the Albion, by the end of the 80s, it was down to sort of five, 6,000. It really was poor. But that was reflected across the country. Even Chelsea were only getting 8,000 in, that kind of thing. And Chelsea were kind of languishing near the bottom of the second tier. So we had a lot of bills and debts, and it was just generally poorly run and the inland revenue which is the the the, the national body that runs uh, 
taxation in this country were hauling us up in front of the high court for unpaid tax bills we managed to get out of it via various stories and that's uh, if you want brief i can't do brief because so so we, we just managed to sort of squeeze our way out of it in came an owner who had no connection to the club he lived at the other end of the country and if we had nowhere to play the club would have folded now you have to bear in mind that even though not that many people in comparative terms had used to turn up in those days you just turned up paid your money moaned cheered did what you did or went home but this galvanized the fans into a collective unit to actually oust that particular owner of the club who had sold us down the river. So we spent two years playing away our away fixtures 70 miles away in a town called Gillingham, uh, which is a horrible place. We managed to get back to the town and went to uh, a place called Wisden, which was basically the municipal athletics track. You have one in each town here, and Brighton's was awful. It needed upgrading just to get to the bare minimum of what it was we wanted. We we were supposed to spend about five or six years there. We spent 12 years there uh, before eventually. And, and part of the campaign that we had was three campaigns. One was originally getting rid of the chairman. The second one was to get us back to Brighton because we were at Gillingham. And the third one was to uh, get the stadium approved. A again, you can't just build anything anywhere. You have to go through planning guidelines. And, and in this instance, it required the deputy prime minister to approve it. Such was the scale of the project. So, and even then, there's another book I can recommend called We Want Farmer, which tells of that story as well. Um, so, Laura Ellen, there's a, there should be a couple of books winging your way if you just head it to Amazon, because, you know, if you, I know you've been reading Brighton Up, but, you know, um, head for those books as well that, you know, you, you'll, you'll, you'll need a, a, a tissue while you're, while you're reading it because it's, it's a real onion chopper. Um, <laughs> and in 2011, I'm trying to cut a long story short here. In 2011, we finally got our prize and moved to the stadium that we're in now, um, which was thankfully uh, sponsored by one of our local employers, which happens to be American Express. You know the different stadiums that brighton was in and and how that was difficult for you as a community and it sounds like a lot of the things that were happening contextually across english football were contributed in part um to to you know what was happening um with with this club in particular but it's something you something else you mentioned that i think is interesting so so we think of the english premier league or at least i think of the english premier league um, as someone who knows very little, is kind of this like pillar um, of excellence, like this this beacon of like what we want, what what soccer fans in the U.S. That's what we want Major League Soccer, which is our top division here. That's what we want our division to look like. We want it to look like the Premier League, and uh, to to some degree, I think. Um, and so you mentioned stadium requirements. Um, are there like what like what are the requirements for teams to even uh, be in the Premier League? Um, yes, there has to be a minimum requirement, but that's to do with the law rather than uh, <clears throat> anything the Premier League stipulates. So it's about safety and uh, access and egress and uh, public transport and, uh, like I say, the, the whole notion of, uh, of catering and all these various things, which actually are the same across the top two divisions <clears throat> with teams that have been relegated to the third division it's not as though they've stripped out their seats and just put terracing in they've kept their their stadia uh, intact for them to come back up to the to the top division so in terms of specific stadium requirements i mean for instance bournemouth who have been in the, the premier league for about two or three years now their stadium's only eleven thousand. theirs is a history of not being a particularly big club they are in the biggest most successful period of their history 
Um, ours was a purpose-built stadium, 30,000. You could argue that it's probably not big enough, but at the time, it certainly seemed big enough. Um, so, yeah, specifically, no, not a, a stadium requirement for the Premier League, uh, only those set down by law. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Because, you know, there are... Um you know, requirements here. So we have had new requirements. So, you know, the Riverhounds are in the United Soccer League, which is our second division here in the mm-hmm. U.S. And and we have stadium requirements set forth by the league that we have to have at least, I think it's 5,000 seats um, in a stadium. And and so it might be more than that, but um, mm-hmm. which, which is an interesting thing. And, you know, having the technology to broadcast um, uh, games and things like that, um, which is fascinating. And then, and then something else that, that you mentioned, um, that I do want to touch on because this is, at least from my perspective, I think this is one of, if not the biggest difference between, uh, English football and soccer here in the U S is this idea of relegation promotion. So can Mm. you talk about what that looks like and, and how it works? And even if you wanted to, to talk about, um, you know, Brighton's journey and kind of their experience with relegation and promotion, uh, that would be fantastic. Sure. Just briefly before I answer that question, you did actually raise a point there about broadcast. Yes, there has to be a minimum certain amount of broadcasting facilities at the stadium, which they had to upgrade, for instance, when we got to the Premier League. Um, But that was just a case of shifting a few seats. And I think they had to change the lights as well. The lights weren't bright enough. But, you know, it's it's things like that. Excuse me. As for promotion and relegation, it's automatic. The bottom three from the Premier League automatically get relegated into the Championship. They, in turn, are replaced by the top two from the Championship and then the next four play off against each other. So it's third against sixth, uh, home and away, and fourth against fifth, home and away. And the winners of those ties then go to Wembley to play their playoff final. Um, And it's automatic. Um, Again, going from the championship to League One, so from second tier to third tier, again, it's exactly the same. Three clubs down, two up, plus the playoff winners. And then from the third tier to the fourth tier is four down, and then three up, plus the next four playing off. And then from the fourth tier to the uh, into the, the fifth tier, which is from league to non-league, the bottom two go down. Uh, and the top two come up, although they must have certain stipulations for their stadium. So we, the stadium stipulations are, are so relatively low in terms of Premier League that they're not worth worrying about. By the time you get to the fourth and fifth tier, um, you've got to have a stadium that's about a minimum of 4,000, which the vast majority of stadiums from uh, fifth to the fourth tier are already. So there's, there's very few issues with that. Then when you go into um, from the National League into the Regional Leagues, There'll be two or three that go down from that. And depends on where they are geographically, they'll either go into the North or the South division. So promotion and relegation is automatic. It used to be the case until about the mid-80s that between the fourth and the fifth tier, in other words, the difference between league and non-league, you had something called applying for re-election, which was basically a committee decided whether you were, your club was in a strong enough position that you were going to be able to, you were going to go down. And, and, and the, the clubs allowed to come up was very, very few and far between. It might have been one every five or six years. <clears throat> The stipulation had to be that one of the four teams at the bottom of the fourth tier were in a bad enough position that they could that they would be relegated. So effectively, those top four tiers were a closed shop, 
until such time as they could prove that one of those teams that finished in the bottom four was so badly run they needed to be relegated. Um, so, yes, promotion, relegation, automatic. Yeah, and so is there, like, a lot of movement? So, I don't know, at least when I think about promotion, relegation, um, and maybe it's just the way that the the United Soccer League. Um, so I feel like from, from year to year, there are certain teams that tend to be towards the top of the league, um, but it's not uncommon for a team who wasn't so great last year to be really great, you know, this current season um, mm-hmm. and kind of make it to the top. So is there a lot of movement between the leagues or what, what does that look like? Um, yeah, I mean, certain teams have been, I mean, it has been the case that teams have been relegated immediately after winning the title. So, um, I mean, I remember the days back in, ooh, let me think, late 80s, early 90s, Manchester City, um, just and just winning a penalty shootout in the playoff to go from the third tier to the second tier. Um, I mean, Bournemouth, for instance, you know, have been historically a fourth division club. Brighton have been spent most of their time in the third division. So when you've got top teams like Aston Villa won the, the title in the 80s, they're in the second division. In fact, there's a fair amount of teams who have won titles in the 70s and 80s who are in the second division now and have been in the third division. And in fact, a couple of them have been in the fourth division. So, yes, it, it, it often depends on how the club is run as to how they're going to get on. Now, the other thing, to to really queer the pitch about the nature of the Premier League, which for me is little more than the old first division, but with a massive marketing budget and a big marketing wheeze, is that because there's such a huge amount of money that goes into the Premier League compared to the tier below, that when you get relegated, all the TV money that the Premier League clubs get, those teams that are relegated for the following two or three seasons get a declining percentage also of that TV money. I think it's something like you get relegated, you'll get 50% of what you would have got in the Premier League, and then the next year you get 30%, and then the following year the 20%. So it actually queers the pitch for for the, the second tier of teams coming down who are going to be financially advantaged because what they've done is they've given such ludicrously high value contracts to the players who are going to be playing uh, in championship football, in second tier football, where the income revenues are nothing like what they are in the Premier League. And so a club would struggle to pay those contracts. You know, you've raised a couple of points for me here. Um, but one of the things, so, you know, um, you know, you talked about, well, like you could win uh, the division one season and be relegated the next. So um, what, like, from Hasn't your perspective, while, okay, so, but, but from your perspective, like why, you know, I understand that it's kind of like a points thing and, and is, uh, you know, aut- you know, automatic with, with some playoffs thrown in there, but, um, mm. but like what would make a team from being successful from either being like mid to towards the upper end of a league to, you know, in a year or two being relegated, is it just poor management or are there other things that, that may contribute to that? Well, there could be any number of things. It could be, for instance, I mean, let's take, for example, Leicester City. Leicester won the title about three years ago and it was a total shock to everyone. I mean, of all teams, you think out of the top, out, sorry, outside of the top six, of all teams, you think, okay, we're, we're not going to have a team from the top six that's going to win the Premier League. Who's it going to be? Believe me, Leicester City, who would have been everyone's favourites for relegation that season, you know, came in and stormed the way through. Okay, so what happens from there? What happens is the bigger clubs, I mean, Leicester might have won the title, but they still can't pay the big money that Manchester United, Chelsea, Manchester city can pay so what will happen is is that those bigger clubs will cherry pick certain players 
who they realized were the key architects for Leicester winning the title. <clears throat> and it's happened. Most of that Leicester team that won the title three years ago, they're playing at other clubs now. So that's an example. Yes, you could have a manager who's then poached. I mean, for instance, you know, not long after Leicester won the, the, the title, um, you know, the, the manager was sacked and they had to start again. So these things are only ever a one-season wonder when you're at a smaller club. it can only, These title challenges can only be sustained at bigger clubs. So you'll have one of the smaller clubs, like, for instance, Burnley last year. They managed to make it into the top seven. Good for them, but they're struggling to sustain that because they do not have the finances and resources to compete. They might have a decent first 11, but then their backup 11 or their backup 15 players, 14 players, will not be so good. Whereas when you've got Manchester City, they can put out probably two teams of 11 superstars and still destroy everyone. So it's it's down to often down to the finances of the given club. And it was brilliant that Leicester won it. And it was done fairly and what have you. But you know that these things aren't sustainable just because they don't have the finances and the, the clout, even on the international stage, of being able to compete with the, with the top boys. Yeah, I have so many follow-up questions uh, for you. So, so you know, you've talked about it, and and I've heard about it from you know various folks here in the states. But this, there's this idea of like the top six, uh, the top seven, maybe teams. And so, can you talk about who who are the top six? Um, okay, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about teams who are so financially advantaged. Um, that kind of success begat success. The, the teams we're talking about in this, at the moment, we're talking about Manchester United, Manchester City, Arsenal, Spurs, Chelsea, and Liverpool. Um, so you're saying have, all the teams that uh, most American fans are cheering for. <laughs> basically, because they say, yeah, absolutely. They see the ones that, I mean, you know, who wants to follow an unsuccessful, well, apart from yourself, who wants to follow an unsuccessful team? <laughs> Um, no, I don't. Don't get me wrong. I admire your loyalty over these past eight weeks. Um, it's they. They are so advantaged. I mean, they're in major cities. We're talking about th uh, three of them in London, two in Manchester, one in Liverpool. Um, so, and they have the biggest stadium. Spurs are about to open their big stadium. It's all a big sustainable push they can have. After that, I mean, you've got the likes of Everton, who once upon a time were part of this big four, which didn't include the likes of Manchester City. Um, Everton have kind of dropped away a little bit. Um, you'd have had other clubs. I mean, back in the 80s, it would have been Aston Villa and Ipswich were big clubs. I mean, small clubs, but more successful clubs, because in those days you had a more level playing field. But when you play into something like the Champions League or even the Europa League, they throw so much money at the rest of the th teams that don't get. So it's success begat success. It's almost breaking into a closed shop. The argument here is, is you have the top six and then you have a 14-team relegation scrap. Um, and I wish actually Brighton would actually look at that and say, well, actually, of those four, to, of the, you know, the other 13 teams in this bottom part were actually not that much worse and, in fact, in some cases, better than some of those teams. So I wish we'd start playing, you know, as well as them. That's another well, story entirely. Yes, well, we can, we can certainly have... Uh... A, a very long conversation uh, yes, about we can. that, certainly. Um, I suggest you come to England and, and we'll do it over a beer. Well, yes. Well, if someone would pay my way, then I would certainly be there. Um, okay. So uh, you've mentioned this idea of kind of the bigger clubs and the smaller clubs, and um, you've talked about, you know, you know these the, the top six clubs that you just talked about are able to kind of pay um, – you know, their players' wages and there's just, or pay better wages, I should say. And, um, 
And so can you talk about kind of what differentiates a bigger club from a smaller club? Like, is it just finances? Is it just that they're in London or some of the big cities or what is it? Um, I think there's, there's an air of it being historical. Now, um, for instance, it's, it's not that easy to pinpoint one, but I mean, for instance, Manchester United have always had the biggest stadium in the country. Um, Liverpool through the seventies and eighties, um, were the most successful club in the country. In fact, probably the most successful club in Europe, bar none. Um, and they haven't won the league title since 1990. Um, and if they'd have actually done that in the Premier League era, then they probably would be bigger than Manchester United are now. Manchester City, for instance, again, you know, a second club in a big city, in, in England's third city. Um, then you're, you know, they, they had this sort of big foreign investment come in before all these various financial rules were, were, were kicked in. Um, Chelsea is a kind of a slight anathema because they've been mildly successful until such times, again, someone invested heavily in them before the financial rules kicked in. Roman Abramovich, you know, was about to invest in Spurs. He ended up flying over Chelsea and, and thought that was Spurs and decided to invest in them instead. Um, Arsenal has always been a big club. So historically, they've always been big clubs. They've always been, you know, they've been sort of relatively successful over the years. Um, but then there's always been other clubs like, for instance, Aston Villa, who are always big, um, Preston North End, who are always quite big once upon a time. It's about, I guess, the sustainability of the model in question. So, no, it's not specifically about London, because, I mean, there's several London clubs, even in the Premier League, let alone the rest of the league. Um, but, you know, and Manchester can easily sustain two clubs. Liverpool can easily sustain two clubs. And they've always been big on this kind of thing. Is there a one specific reason? I can't really pinpoint it. It's, it's more of a historical thing. Um, and those who are actually being run very well at the time that the Premier League started and the money started flowing in, those are the ones that capitalised and, and have sustained themselves ever since. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned a couple times there uh, the financial rules. And so I, I guess I don't, what are those rules? And could you explain that to me? Well, it's not that easy, but it's something in place. It's almost a slight farcical thing, really, called FFP, Financial Fair Play, which is supposed to be a set of rules set down that how much you can spend in terms of your revenue. Um, but they are so watered down. They are so farcical. Manchester City frequently break those rules. Paris Saint-Germain, who are, uh, you know, it's, it's a Europe-wide thing. Um, they frequently break the rules. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a different set of rules, for instance, in the championship. Uh, and they're so much more draconian. And because the clubs don't have the same clout, they are, they're going to get clobbered for it. I mean, Leicester and Bournemouth, when they got promoted, they cheated the FFP system <clears throat> and got fined for it. But, but the money that goes into the Premier League, or rather goes from the Premier League to those clubs, it was a drop in the ocean by the time they were fined. Um, so, yes, there's supposed to be a set of rules in place as to good governance because too many football clubs were either going to the wall or they were going to um, they were going into administration meant all their, their, their creditors were being unpaid. I mean, like a small club in London, uh, Crystal Palace. Uh, sorry about swearing there. You know, they've been to they've they've gone into administration twice, leaving their their creditors, you know, holding out their hands and getting nothing. So it's about supposed to be about proper governance of a given football club. But the rules are so watered down and so meek. Um, but the fact is there is something in place and they can't just sort of throw money at absolutely because Manchester City's owners have bottomless, you know, pits of money. 
you know, Roman Abramovich, an incredibly rich fella, and so on and so forth. You've got American investors, you've got Chinese investors, you've got Southeast Asian investors, you've got Middle East investors coming into football clubs. You know, for the most part, the vast majority of football clubs are loss-making companies, with the exception of those at the very top, like Manchester City, Manchester United. Um, so those are the ones that, because there's there's been this inward investment, either because they would like to see the notion of the brand, which they want to be associated with, or the fact that, you know, now they can realize they can make some money out of this, where previously, you know, this is the first time that anyone's been able to make money out of football. So um, it's, as to explaining the FFP rules, very tricky. I'm not an expert. I could think of a fellow who could actually explain it for you, but that's another show again. But... <laughs> Um, there have there have been nominal rules put in place as to the nature of spending versus revenue. Right. Yeah. And I think just a, a quick aside before we move on, and, and it's been interesting, you know, as Alan and I have been, so. been talking, well, certainly as you've been talking, but, but kind of more broadly, uh, you know, we know here in the, in the USL that there are certain teams that we do not talk about. And there are certain teams <laughs> where um, we, we do not, uh, under their names because it's not worth um, our time. And so it's it's interesting that, uh, you know, I think that translates also, um, you know, there are certain clubs uh, in England that, um, you know, most folks don't like or, or certain teams don't like. And so I think... Well, we have rivals, if that's what you exactly, mean. Brighton's yes, rivals at Crystal yes. Palace. You know, they, 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 they pan fry their babies. They eat their grannies. They, <laughs> you know, they burned down their town. Actually, that last one was true. Um in the London riots of 2011, they, you know, Croydon burnt, but that's another matter entirely. Sorry. Oh my God. No, they're just rivals. I mean, the, the, the point about the rivalry between Brighton and Crystal Palace is that they're, they're clubs of similar size, similar fan base. You don't support them for the glory. And it's like two sibling, you know, two brothers who can't stand each other. Yes, yes. Oh, well, we enjoy a good rivalry. Um, so something you mentioned that I wanted to follow up on, you mentioned the, the Premier League era. Um, what, I thought the Premier League was always there. When 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 did the Premier League era begin? The Premier League started in 1992. Um, it was basically that the bigger clubs, you know, they were deciding they were getting a bit greedy. I mean, the, even now, there's the, the bigger clubs in the Premier League who want to form a European league, which I think would be a major mistake. But no, back, back in those days, they just wanted, they felt there was some more money to be had and they wanted to break away. So where the top four divisions were part of the Football League, the top division clubs agreed to break away they, they they broke away from the football league and formed their own um competition but it was so when now we have three governing bodies in england we have the football league the football association and the premier league all running english football none of whose agendas um match up and so we've got this ridiculous thing of three bodies all pulling in different directions so that yeah the upshot of it was was that the, these bigger clubs wanted to form a bigger uh, a breakaway in order to get a bigger slice of the pie and from that the the amount of money that goes into the top those top 20 clubs is massive i mean it probably takes in i'd say probably 95 percent of all all maybe even a higher percentage than that so the lot of what they have yet to work at, you know, is that without small clubs, there wouldn't be big clubs. The grassroots is so vital to the sustainability of football, not just as a sport, but as a business. And yet they suck all the money and all the life out of grassroots football. Um, 
So it's not necessarily a great thing. So when people talk about Premier League era, oh, who's the biggest, the best striker in the Premier League era, that drives me round the twist. Because for me, it's the same. Because you can get a straight... If, if there was a closed shop, then you could see it's a different competition. But it's not. You still get the same promotion and relegation that you did before. Top three up, top three down, a bottom three down. So it's effectively a massive marketing wheeze that just so happens to be run by someone else. Um, and it, it drives me around the twist. You know, who's the greatest striker in the Premier League era? No, 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 no. Doesn't work that way. Who's the greatest striker in the top division uh, ever? Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, excuse me while I tear what's left of my hair out. <laughs> no, no. And I, I think, you know, that's a, a helpful perspective because um, there certainly is a lot of marketing in the US. Um, you know, NBC mm. and NBC Sports has, you know, you know, plays, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a game playing, you know, most Saturdays uh, during the season, well, every Saturday during the season, um, you know, and and so it is something that it has become more accessible to folks in the U.S., which I think is a good thing, but um, mm, there certainly yeah. uh, is, is a uh, a flip side to that um, in kind of what that looks like for clubs um, historically and kind of within the historical perspective of uh, English football. And so something you well, mentioned... Which... Sorry, I have to say... Sorry, Laura, and I have to say this, that one of the notions, or the, there, was, there was a multi-pronged idea as to how the Premier League was going to work and what it was, what the benefits of it were. And one of those was supposed to be the betterment of the English national side. Now, bearing in mind that in those days, the vast majority of players who played in England were, were, were British. They were either English, Scottish, or Welsh, or Irish. Um, there wasn't the, the, the you know, a, a French person or a Spanish person coming to play in England was a, you know, a, a curiosity. But in that sense, because of the way that the clubs have run their business and they see and, and the money that's come in, the vast majority of it has gone to players and the, the wages have actually just sort of astronomically spiraled. Any decent player that says, well, I want to play in England, it's not for the quality of the football, it's for the wages. So and, and so the money got sucked into those players and all the things that were supposed to be set aside for the, the improvement of the national side didn't happen. And since 1992, England have done diddly squat at all the various European and world um, competitions. So in that sense, the Premier League has been an absolute abject failure. What it has done is, yes, there's some very good football. And yes, we've seen some of the best footballers in the world play in England. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the competition per se is better. And it just certainly hasn't meant that football across the country in terms of um, bringing in new players, bringing in English players, bringing in young players coming through. They've only come through the top academies. They haven't come through the grassroots for the most part. So in that sense, the Premier League still has an awful lot of explaining to do. Well, there you have it. Part one of my conversation with Alan Wares of the Albion Roar, a podcast covering Brighton and Hove Albion of the English Premier League. Stay tuned for part two coming very soon. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, the official scarf supplier of the MLS, USL, and US Soccer. Get your custom scarf for your club or team at roughneckscarves.com. Also, thank you to our wonderful network of podcasts, the Beautiful Game Network. You can check them out, as always, on Twitter at the BGNFM. You can find us on Twitter at Mongols or at WoMongols, or you could email us at mongols at BGN. Head over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thanks, everybody. I'll talk to you very, very soon.